Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Well, welcome everybody. Um, we will officially begin the first Wednesday night networking of season four. I'm Stacey Murray with the Gateway Research Organization, and we are a nonprofit agricultural applied research association based in Westlock, Alberta. I'm fairly new to grow, so this is my first live uh, Wednesday night networking event, but I can say that we're all very excited to be hosting these networking nights with Steve Kenyon of Greener Pastures Ranching for the fourth season. Um, this session is being recorded and will be shared as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Uh, so you can find that by searching Wednesday Night Networking, Sustainable Agriculture, or Gateway Research Organization. Excuse me. Um, like I mentioned, this is the fourth season. So if you'd like to catch up on the previous three, if you weren't part of them um, for the network and learning, uh, please be sure to check out the podcast. Everyone is welcome to ask questions of Don Campbell, our guest tonight, or Steve, by entering the question in the chat. I will try and take them in order and ask that everyone keep their mic muted until it's your turn to talk. If you have a question and would prefer not to speak or you don't have a mic, uh, please indicate that in the chat so that I know that uh, I need to read your question out. I'm happy to do that. Uh, don't forget to hang around at the end of the session for the after networking networking at 7.30 um, or shortly thereafter tonight. That's when we stop recording. Everyone can turn on their mics and video cameras and conversation is free flowing like um, during coffee after a workshop. So. With that, I think we can get underway. So I'll turn it over to Steve to introduce our guest himself and tonight's topic. Excellent, thank you, Stacy. Uh, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Steve Kenyon with Greener Pastures Ranching. Um, Wednesday night networking, what is it? Um, about four years ago, well, three years ago, COVID was going and uh, it didn't really affect me because it had happened in the spring and it kind of disappeared, right? COVID hit and I went working on the farm. My uh, my conference season was over, so it was not a big deal to me. But then November came along and November was when I'm supposed to go out and go to conferences and seminars. And and that was what where I got most of my education from is going to conferences and seminars and listening to rock stars like Don Campbell at conferences. So. All of a sudden, I realized that I was not going to get any education in that winter. I said, okay, something's not right here. We did a couple of Zoom conferences and seminars where they asked me to be a speaker, and I went on there, and I was talking to some blank screens, and, and nobody asked questions. A few people might have asked questions through the moderator, and then they said, okay, well, that was good, and they turned it off. It was so unfulfilling, <laughs> unrewarding. I didn't know if people were laughing at my jokes or or it was just blank. And I thought right there, these conferences are going to be educational, but there's no networking. So I said, we need to start up something that's just networking. So came up with Wednesday night networking where there is no presentation. We're going to have a special guest. Um, myself and the guest are going to answer some questions. Um, we we kind of start with a topic but we don't have to stay there. We can go wherever you guys wanna go with questions. So we're gonna do this for an hour and a half. Um, 
I, I was absolutely shocked at how popular this became three years ago. Uh, I thought it was going to be 30 people on and, you know, we usually have between 50 and 250 people come on here. So uh, very excited about another season and there's nobody better to kick this off than Don Campbell. Like I said, he's one of our regenerative rock stars of, uh, of agriculture. Uh, very pleased to have him on here tonight. And I think uh, something about the future of agriculture he wants to talk about tonight as a starting a uh, little bit. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Don and uh, let him kind of do a little bit of an intro here. And if you guys want to start asking some questions, um, we take them in order. So you better get them in early if uh, you want your question asked. So this usually uh, uh, we got way more questions than time normally. So I'd advise you to get your questions in early. Uh, Don, kick it over to you and give a little intro and tell us about what you're what you're all about. Okay, thank, thank you very much, Steve. And uh, if I'm a rock star, my music is terrible. But I'm certainly glad to be here. Um, just a very brief background. I was introduced to holistic management in about 1985. And I've managed my ranch since then in that mode. I've also taught holistic management starting about late 80s up until three or four years ago. So that's kind of my background. And what I wanted to do tonight, I'm going to start out briefly, if it's okay with everybody, and Steve included, of course. I, I want to talk about what I see coming in the future, because I think we're in very changing times. And I'm, I'm an older man. I'm 79 years old. I've had quite a bit of experience, and I'd like to share some of that. I want to stress that it's my opinion. It's not backed up by fact or figures, but I'd like to share it. And if it interests you, think about it, maybe do something about it. If it doesn't interest you, we can make my session short and I can answer questions anytime about anything. So, Excellent. Well, you can uh, definitely jump right into what you want to talk about. Um, what, what do you see coming in the, in the future? Okay. What? Well, th thank you for that, Steve. And as I mentioned earlier, I knew Alan Savory for about 35 years. When I first met Alan, one of the things he talked about was desertification and we're going to have more erratic weather more floods and more droughts. And I think most people think, well, floods and droughts are, you know, opposite extremes, and they are, but they're very linked. When you have a poor water cycle, you get too much rain, you don't get enough rain, you get more floods, it, it's all tied together. So anyway, I don't think I ever doubted, Alan, that we would see these things. I didn't think they would come in my lifetime. I thought I'd be dead and gone before we had to deal with it. And what I see now, like in my local area, I believe the weather has changed from when I was a young man. And as I look around the world, I see the weather is changing, in my opinion, everywhere. So I think we're going to create a worldwide shortage of food and water. And if that happens, the results will be catastrophic and totally unknown because we've been brand new times. And in agriculture and probably in most industries, all of our planning goes on, you know, the last 10 years, the last 20 years, well, we're just going to repeat that in one manner or another. If we go into a shortage of food, we have no idea what that will look like. In North America, we've had ample food and cheap food since the end of the Second World War. That's 75 years. And we've had more or less stable weather. So if those things change, nobody knows what's coming. Uh, I think we should be flexible and we should be aware. And that's what I'm really trying to do tonight is to share. And I don't say I'm right. I'm saying this is what I think. I ask you to think, what do you think when you look at the signs and the, system, the seasons? So the highest cattle prices in my lifetime, I think, occurred in the 1950s. That's relative to the cost of production. 
And as we move ahead, I expect cattle prices to exceed the cost of production just on a regular basis. In other words, the next 20, 30, 40 years are going to be totally different than my career was. Because in my career, ranching was a tough business. Prices were always hard. It was hard to make a living. I'm sure you all agree with that. And as we move ahead, I think it will be different. And I want to stress, like, if we go into these times that I'm considering, it's important to point out that agriculture is the foundation of civilization. And if you go back and you look at history, there's been 26 civilizations that have failed when their agriculture failed. And we could have the same thing even with all our modern technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like one of my good friends used to say, he said, nature bats last and nature has deep pockets. So I'd like to throw out a little bit of motivation as we go along. One of them is do the best you can with what you have where you are. And that was Theodore Roosevelt. And we're all in unique situations, our land, our situation, our family, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to manage individually. There's no one answer fits everybody. Possible changes that I see coming, cattle psychic as we know it could disappear because we all realize, you know, price of cows, our feeder cattle goes up, cow numbers change. Price goes down, cow numbers change again. In the future, cow numbers may be based not on the price of the cattle, but on the erratic weather. And I'm going to say, like, how many cows can I run? I'm not sure about my climate here anymore. And where I live, I live in Metal Lake, Saskatchewan. We're one of the, I would say, fairly sure rainfall area. Our land base, we've got low land, we've got medium land, and we've got high land. So we're pretty, you know, pretty flexible. And we're cutting down on our stocking rate because we don't know what the weather's going to do. So I suspect we could have 20 or 30 years of strong cattle prices. And I know that sounds like heresy, but that's what I think. Uh, I want to share another quote from this is from Bud Williams. In the cattle business, you have grass, money, and cattle. You'll never have too much grass or too much money, but you can't have too many cattle. Now, in the past, you know, I think most people have stocked, well, I got grass for 100 cows, I should run 100, maybe 110. I'm going to suggest a new way to set your stocking rate. And that's going to say, run as few cattle as necessary to be profitable. So I'm anticipating higher prices. Therefore, you won't need as many cattle as you've needed in the past. If you change and run fewer cattle, the results will be you'll set your, your, deserve, your desired profit will be achieved. Like you say, I need 100 cows to make whatever I want to make, 5,000, 50,000, whatever the number is. Go for it. In a challenging year, you'll have enough grass. You'll get through the year. In a good year, you'll make a deposit into the biological bank account. So those extra cows that you don't own, you'll invest that in improving your land, which will increase your carrying capacity in future years. And then things that might happen, and I'm not predicting these, but I think the possibilities like forage type cattle will become more popular. Cattle that need rain will become less popular. Flexible stocking rate may be advantageous. It may be absolutely necessary. Cow yearling operations will become more common because if you've got cow yearlings, you sell your yearlings, you've got about a third more grass for your cows right off the bat. If you're a cow-calf and your stock and it gets tough, cows and calves are hard to sell different times of the year. Uh, there'll be less calves sold at weaning and a really radical far-out one, the feedlot industry could disappear. And, you know, feedlots, I realize they're, they're keen on, they run everything. They only started in the 1950s. 
That's only 70 years. Before that, all the cattle were grass-fed. And the feedlots are a byproduct of cheap grain. They get nothing to do with the ranch. They're a byproduct of cheap grain. We could get by without feedlots, and it could happen. Things like ethanol could also disappear. So that's kind of, you know, I wanted to go through this picture because I didn't want to take too much time. I want to get time to talk about what you like, what you'd like to talk about. But that's kind of how I see things going. So I'm going to suggest that I lost one of my sheets of paper. Oh, here it is. I had this written down so I wouldn't lose it all. Last quote I'm going to use, uh, Henry Ford. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And so much depends on our attitudes. And fortunately, we can pick our attitudes. You know, Like I see myself as six foot tall and bulletproof and something's got to be done. I'm very, very confident I can figure out how to do it. And then when I turn to my wife, Bev, and she says, well, why can't you do it? You're 10 feet tall and bullet. And then I just go ahead and do it. So we can choose our attitudes. We can all do better. We can start today. I believe in every one of you in this, on this call. We can do better. Believe in yourself. Let's go ahead. And with that, I'd like to stop that little preamble and open it up to questions, which could apply to what I said, or it could be questions on anything. I'm glad to answer any kind of question. Excellent. Thanks, Don. A um, couple of things that I I took from you uh, just during that talk. Um, number one, I think you're the guy that I'm going to blame for me first meeting Alan Savory and getting those same questions in my head. Because I first met him at a conference in Lloydminster when you were part of the Devon Club and you brought Alan Savory right to Lloyd. And he starts talking about desertification and water cycles and and the changing weather and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, what? How on earth have I never heard of this in my all my years of college? How come nobody's described this to me before? Uh, and he hit the nail right on the head. And it was it was actually a one of those, uh, uh, you know, life changing moments for me when I met him. Um, and, and listen to him that first time. So, yeah, I'm going to blame you for that. Thank you. <laughs> it's a wonderful, uh, I'm wonderful. Glad, I'm glad to be blamed for that. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you if you think there's still a 10-year cattle cycle. Is it gone? Well, I, I think it's gone, Steve, because what I see coming is the weather is going to be so erratic. Like I mentioned, in our little area here in the Metal Lake area, some guys have got 9 or 10 inches of rain. Other guys have got close to 20. That didn't used to happen 30, 40 years ago. We all got, you know, not the same amount, but close to the same amount. And the weather patterns are more erratic, so we're going to be cautious about how many cattle we can run. And then if we don't need as many cattle because the prices are higher, we can say, gee, it's easier to predict the price of cattle than it is to predict the rainfall. So instead of setting my stocking rate on what I think the rainfall might be or how much grass I might get, I'm going to set it on how much profit I desire. And I think that's easier to predict. Like if I was sitting down today to do a financial plan, I'd be way more confident in predicting price for my yearlings next fall than I would be predicting how much rain I'm going to get. Yeah. So I'm saying let's go to what's more predictable, which I'm saying is going to be cattle prices, and use that to set our numbers. So the other part of the water cycle that I think is a major contributor to this is actually the amount of drainage we have now, right? We're constantly draining land. We're doing, you know, ditching and 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 then we're causing floods because of it. And 
that's a huge impact. If we're losing our marshlands, we're losing our catchment basins, our dugouts, our ponds. Um, I think we need to change our mentality. And and in, <laughs> there was a, a term here a while ago. Uh, we 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 talk about uh, watersheds, right? The the Saskatchewan, North Saskatchewan watershed. The the all the different rivers they have watersheds. Well, when I think of a watershed, that's shedding water, right? Water off a duck's back. We're losing water. We need to change that mentality and use it as a catchment basin, right? It's a it's it. Let's catch it. Let's hold on to it. Not push it away and get rid of it. So I think that's a major part of it. If we could start to hold on to water and think differently about it, instead of trying to drain all the land all the time, uh, I think that would make a huge, huge difference across the world, basically. I think you're right on there, Stephen. Like I've read somewhere that uh, 20% of your local rainfall comes from local evaporation. And if you have no standing water because you've drained everything, you're going to have 20% less rain right away. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things is everybody talks about you got too much rain or too little rain. Nobody talks about the water cycle. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure everybody on this call be aware you can double your effective rainfall, which is the amount of rainfall that's available for plant growth by how you manage your land. Now, just imagine that if you could go to, you know, some chemical company or somebody and say, oh, you got that magic spray, it'll double my rainfall you wouldn't be able to fight your way to the front of the line to buy it. And we can do it for free. And many of us are doing it. That's what's going to make our future better. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Stacy. I see chat was just going. Do we have any questions in there yet? There is one here, Steve. Uh, Grass Whisperer, if you'd like to ask your question. Come on, Troy. You're the next contestant. <laughs> I can read it out if you're having trouble here. Getting your... Mike going. Basically, he's wondering what uh, we think of the explosion of the regenerative narrative. Um, I heard he said he wasn't thrilled. What about all the labels? That's a really good question. And, you know, if you look, at least when I look behind the regenerative movement, a lot of the people in that movement, especially some of the key ones, have come from holistic management backgrounds. And they're bringing their holistic training and they're putting a new title on it. I'm more interested in results than types. So I certainly wouldn't knock it. If they can help people change, I'm all for change. And underlying a lot of their stuff is related to holistic management. It's not opposed to what we say at all. I would make one little comment is that anything I've read, they talk mostly about land management and they forget that we have a three-legged stool. We need to look after our people. We need to improve the land and we need to make a profit. So the land alone won't cut it. But I think they know that, and they will develop programs that will help with the people and help with the finances over time. I agree. I agree. Uh, the The term regenerative agriculture is relatively new, um, but it's the same thing we've been doing for, you know, since I started my career. When I started, it was what I called it was holistic planned grazing or holistic resource management, I believe it was originally called. Um, then the term came up, uh, I was using intensive cell grazing, and then it went to sustainable grazing or sustainable management. And then there was an argument where people were saying, well, 
we don't want to be sustainable because that's that's going to stay the same. And the problem is the land is degraded already, so we don't want it to stay the same. So then the, the regenerative term was the argument about how we're going to regenerate the land. So it doesn't matter what we call it. I'm doing the same thing I did 25 years ago with hopefully a whole bunch of improvements on it, but it's still the same mentality. They just call it something different. So the term regenerative, yes. Is it being greenwashed? Yes, in some places. Um, I heard that now it's a bad term in the East, whereas in the West, we still think it's a good term, I guess. It just hasn't been greenwashed as much out here. Um, Keep in mind, it's a mentality, right? We're trying to improve the system. Um, The way I look at it, the simplest way for me to explain what regenerative agriculture is, um, modern agriculture grows plants from the soil. Okay, they they put in a seed, they use the soil as a medium, they add fertilizer, they grow the plant, they harvest it and sell it. Okay, the regenerative mindset is that we're growing the soil from the plants. Okay, we're we're thinking differently and we're, we're using the tools of the livestock and the plants to take carbon out of the air and put it into the soil. Right. We're literally growing soil. So it's just a mindset shift. It's different than modern agriculture. We have to keep that in mind. Um, we're we're fighting an uphill battle. But the good news is I have never in 25 years seen this much money thrown at regenerative agriculture. There's grants and funds. And yes, a lot of it's wasted, but a lot of it is going in some really good directions. Uh, I think we're finally being seen. It's a lot easier now to sell this than it was 15 years ago, that's for sure. So whatever you call it, regenerative agriculture, um, yeah, it is a way a way to move forward uh, into, you know, growing the soil and building biodiversity and improving our, our lands, right? Changing the, if we're worried about the climate changing and the weather changing, that, that's the tool to use. We need to fix that. I have another question from Nathan. Nathan, do you want to... Ask your question. You can unmute yourself. Yeah, Don, if you could just maybe just walk us through the different seasons on your place. Um, I don't know, you know, if you're doing it now or in the past, but, you know, when when do you calve? How often do you rotate in the pasture? When do you move to winter feeding? What are you feeding? Um, you know, do you preg check? You know, basically just just sort of summarize your operation and some of the stuff you've learned that might be helpful to us. That, that's great, Nathan. I'd be glad to do that. Um, we run about 700 cows here, and we background our calves, so we run long yearlings on our own land. Uh, right now, we probably cut down 10% on our cow herd because of the erratic weather. And we've had some unique challenges here, like we've had a couple of floods. We live on a floodplain of a river. So we've had all the challenges that you guys have all faced, and we've had a couple that are unique to us because of the flooding. So we run about 700 cows. Uh, we calve in May and June. Due date to be about the 20th of May. First calf on the 10th of May. Run the bulls for 60 days. Wean the calves towards the end of October. We may keep them home. We may send them off to the background or somewhere else, depending on the year. Uh, we start grazing in the spring, like, you know, sometime in May, we start cutting back on the hay and grazing uh, residual from last year. Calvin in May and June, as I said, in the wintertime, we bale graze. We've been bale grazing since 1988. And I'm sure you're all aware of bale grazing. You just put the bales out the way they come out of the baler, get the twine or the net wrap off, and let the cows at it. When we first started that, we used to be very religious about moving the cows every three days. So everybody got a fair bit amount, you know, everything was equal. 
we've changed that over time by talking to other people. We now put enough feed out for a month. Turn the cows in, they get 30 days of feed, and they do actually, I think they do better than they did when I moved every three days. And I believe they also clean the feed up better. So that's been a real labor saver. Works just fine. Uh, like I said, we started bale grazing in 1988, so we've covered a lot of our land in bale grazing one way or another, either by actually feeding on it or by having the cattle go into the bush for shelter. So, you know, that's improved our land. Like we've more than doubled our ability to grow grass on a set land base, and that's all been through management, not purchasing anything. And I would suggest if you want to be profitable, the quickest way to be more profitable is to grow more grass on your land base. Not by buying something, but by management. And, you know, people, I don't think they have an appreciation for how much difference your carrying capacity can make. And if you can double your stocking rate, now it's going to vary with the numbers, but if you double your stocking rate, chances are your profit will go up about four or five times. It won't just double, it'll go up four or five times. If you increase your stocking rate by 25%, there's a good chance your profit will almost double. So if you want to be profitable, not only in the short term, but in the long term, you want to use that word regenerative. The more you improve the land, the healthier it is in the future, the more you have to work with. And I'd like to give a quick, quick example. My dad had cows in a large cow pen in the 1950s. Over time, the fence has fallen down. It's now part of a pasture. That's some of our most productive land because they put the diamond pies there in the 1950s. That's 70 years ago. And we're still drawing compound interest on that. What else can you do in your business that even comes close to that? And yet most of us spend our time, you know, better Baylor, better genetics, better this, better that. Very few of us think, how can I improve my land so I can run more cattle, be more sustainable, and be more profitable? Now, I went over the ranch part fairly quickly. I don't know, maybe I could, you know, I could talk forever about that. Uh, I want to stress that I have two of my sons and their wives on the ranch with us. They've taken over. They got the ownership. They got the management. I am the hired man. I work when I feel like it. And I want to say how good my sons are to me. Like, the job comes up and it's, you know, fairly hard job. And Scott and Mark probably say, well, that's a little hard for your dad. I say, I think you're right. I'm going to go ride my horse. So I've got, you know, the best of everything in my life. Somebody asked me the other day, says, how would you rate your quality of life on a scale of 1 to 10? And I said, oh, I don't know, 13 maybe? That's how I feel. And a large part of that has been the management we've done for the last 35, 40 years. We have another question from Lori at Leaks. If you want to unmute yourself, Lori, and ask a question. Yeah, sorry. I missed what you were saying about being profitable. And you said something about yearlings versus cow-calf pairs. Can, can you just say that again for me, please? Okay, sure, Lori. Um, what, what I was trying to refer there is that if the weather is erratic, we don't not sure how much grass we're going to grow, how many cattle we can run. If we have all our grass in a cow-calf operation, especially a late calving operation, you run into times when it's very hard to sell pairs or sell calves because they're too young and they're too small. Oh. If you run a cow yearling operation, you come into you got a third of your grass roughly set aside for your yearlings. If it's dry, you sell the yearlings which are saleable any day of the year. You got more grass, you don't have to destock your cow. Thank you. So that makes like, sense. Like a drought management plan. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. We've had that topic come up before here too, Don. I think we've referred to it as a disposable herd. 
right? Yep. You've got your main herd and you've got a disposable herd that you could, you know, ex- or, you know, get rid of them as, as soon, soon as the situation is too hard or, or, you know, maybe just cut your losses when you have to type of thing. So yeah, have a disposable herd that can help you out. So. Sam, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Hello. Uh, this is Mitch. Sam's my wife, but, um, yeah, the question I have for Dawn is um, if you were coming to a new land base and starting from scratch, um, what would you do to get yourself started? That's an excellent question. Thank you very much. Um, I guess the first thing I would do is two things. If you want to improve your land, you need to stop the overgrazing and you need to cover the bare ground. So stopping the overgrazing means you control the time when the cattle are in the pasture and how much time between when they leave the pasture until they come back again. So to do that, you need to start building some fence so you can control the time. You need to figure out what kind of recovery period do I want? So I graze the pasture today. I take the cattle out tomorrow. How many days recovery? And I don't think there's any right or wrong answer for that, but I'm going to suggest most places 60 to 90 days somewhere might be a good answer. And the closer you get to 90, maybe the better your answer would be. So you need to do that. And then as soon as you do that and you start to move your animals, you'll grow more grass. And the tendency for most of us, is as soon as we have more grass, we want more cattle, we want to cut it and bail it. Don't waste it. We need to understand that grass that we grow and we trample is putting money into the biological bank account. It's covering the bare ground. It's improving the water cycle, mineral cycle, all those things, making you more drought resistant, more flood resistant, and more profitable in the future. So I would just start by building fences, covering the bare ground, and go from there. And I talked about improving your land. I don't know of any way to improve your land quicker than to bale graze. There may be some, but I've never heard of one. Bale grazing is just absolute magic, you know. And I can remember years ago when bale grazing was fairly controversial at one time. And I had a guy come out from the government. It wasn't at my place, but a neighbor's of mine. I'd worked with the fellow. The government guy looked at it and he said, well, there's a bare spot in the middle. That's no bale grazing isn't getting good. It caused bare ground. And I went and looked at it. And I said, yeah, that's, that's how I agree. And there's a little patch in the middle where there's too much residual. Nothing grew. But if you look at the circle where the bale impacted the ground, there's four times as much grass as outside the circle. What's more important? And, of course, now bale grazing is widely accepted by almost everybody. But at one time it wasn't. It was very controversial. Thanks, Don. Appreciate that. Yeah, well, I would I would agree with, with you, Don. Um, bale grazing was uh, uh, frowned upon pretty hard about 15, 20 years ago, that's for sure. Only the crackpot crazies did that. But uh, I will admit, too, that is the only magic bullet I've ever found. Right. Everybody's looking for the magic bullet in, in agriculture and pasture management, right? The the best fertilizer, the best this, the best whatever. No, the only one I've ever found is bale grazing. It will um, amazingly repair land right away. The problem is you don't get to hit all your land, right? You can do a very tiny piece at a time. If I have 3,000 acres of land, I go, I'm only going to probably bale graze on maybe 50 in a season. So, you can't fix all your land right away with bale grazing. You got to do it a little piece at a time. So that's when the other management comes in that you have to manage on all the rest of it. And that is put up the fences, control that, that second bite, right? That's my bare minimum in your environment, in your situation, 
how can you manage the second bite, right? To, to, to make sure that the animals are not biting the regrowth of a plant after it's been grown, right? That's a combination of that grace period being short and that rest period being long and allowing that, the, you know, those paddocks to heal and those roots to dig down deep and leave in residue. And it takes time, but uh, I, I guess I've got a 17 year old bale grazing uh, site right now that we bale grazed on it 17 years ago. And now I had a control next to it. I would say at about year between years 10 and 15, they looked the same, right? When I bale grazed the first one 17 years ago, it was phenomenal, right? It just jumped that first year. was amazing. And the control was pretty pathetic next to it. Made some really good pictures, but over time now I've been, I've been managing them with grazing and I'll admit the bale grazing one has gone down, right? It's come down a little bit. It's still a really good pasture. That's where our pasture walk was this spring. And, and uh, Greg Judy really enjoyed being out there. But the one next to it, the control over, over the years of my grazing management, it has improved. And now they look about the same. So I would say that was between, you know, 10 and 15 years where they, they evened out. But so what you can do in one year with bale grazing, it took me 10 to 15 years with managed grazing, I would say. But that's just one example. But yeah, that's what I would do. If I, if I could have one more question, if that's okay. Go for it. Um, so I'm located in Ontario, Canada, just uh, south of Georgian Bay. And around here, uh, we get a lot of moisture, a lot of snow, and it has been failing to freeze for us um and a lot of farmers around here will put their cows in the barn because if they put them out on pasture it can wreck the ground with our heavy clay soils and i have done some bale grazing test plots um just last year was my first time and i did notice that we are you know hugging it quite a bit if we leave them out there i'm not sure if my bales need to be closer together um and then my other concern is getting water to, if I'm moving these bale grazing sites around, making sure that I have frost-free water available. So if you have any tips on that. Um, well, uh, I think you bring up a really good point. Everybody is unique. You know, in mm -hmm. Ontario, you have a different set of situations to be doing Saskatchewan. I would suggest you get a hold of Tony McQuail. Have you ever heard of Tony? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah he's, he's an HM guy. He's actually a certified educator with holistic management. And he's, I, I just forget where he is, but he's near London somewhere, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's doing some bale grazing. He's doing it slightly different than we're doing. Sometimes he's rolling the bales out, maybe not doing it for the whole winter part of the winter. But that's something you need to figure out. And one of the mm -hmm. things I would like to stress is that everybody on this call is the expert on their farm. And Steve and I can give you some principles, but applying those principles is going to be different because of your climate, because of your age, because of your debt, et cetera, et cetera. So don't be intimidated. Go ahead. You're the expert. You'll figure it out. And it'll work just great. Thanks, Don. Yeah, I'll give uh, I'll give Tony a call for sure. Yeah, we got to try new things, but don't be afraid to make mistakes, right? Um, uh, Joel Salton, a uh, quote from him. Um, what is it? You, you, you don't be afraid to make mistakes. Uh, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly first, right? You got to try it and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to screw up. And, and that's how we learn. 
Uh, it's a lot easier to learn from someone else's mistakes, right? Like I learned all my mistakes from Don. So <laughs> that's a good thing, right? So you, you got to try it. I mean, out in Ontario, how many, on average, how many weeks of the winter do you have frozen ground on average? On average, usually a month, but okay. lately it hasn't been at all just because we've been getting snow cover and then uh, the snow keeps it insulated. But um I am I am thinking that just because of the cost of keeping cattle in the barn and feeding the cows, and um, I, I think that just you know leaving them out there for a month and just having to move a fence once a month makes a lot more sense to me. And I think that the ground can recover long term. I'm just yeah, I, I I agree, Steve. I think I need to keep trying and keep making mistakes and figure out what works for me. You also don't have to do the same thing you can, you can adjust, right? Like let's say you put a month's worth of bale grazing out there and you got started, you, you were out there for a week and all of a sudden the ground thawed out. We'll pull them off, get them somewhere else. And then right. when the ground freezes again, oh, let's go back to bale grazing. So a lot of people get in this mindset that, oh, I'm set, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna feed this way, I have to stick to it. Well, no, you don't, you can change, you can have a backup plan, right? I always mm-hmm. talk about having plan A and plan B and sometimes plan W right? Things change all the time. We need to be able to adjust and, and uh, you know, roll with it. So that might be something to do, plan for a month, but you don't have to do it all in a row. You can do it anytime throughout the winter. Right. Thanks. Uh, Nathan, back to you with another question. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to, just, uh, I'm really battling with hay costs this year, right? Because the hay is so expensive in BC um, and even in Alberta. And um, just, you know, how many days are you typically feeding? Any ideas on how to how to keep those winter feeding costs down? Uh, thanks, Nathan. That's a good question. I certainly understand the hay costs. Like, I know they're high. They're not as high here as a lot of places. But I guess you got to, I would say you need to look at it and say, like, there's no use digging a hole this year by paying so much for my hay that I'm going to start going in the hole of what if next year's the same or worse? What am I going to do? So we've got to try to run our cattle to be profitable every year. Now that's a big challenge, you know, with the weather, et cetera, et cetera. So I would suggest you might look at uh, byproducts like screenings, grain, whatever else is available, stuff like that. Depending on where you live, you might want to extend your grazing season. Like where we live, we live in northern Saskatchewan, so hay is relatively cheap in our area. And what the price of hay is, it's what it is here, minus the freight to get itself somewhere where somebody needs it. So we have a relatively long feeding period. We'll start feeding November the 1st. That's kind of our plan. And we'll kind of stop towards the end of April sometime. Now, that isn't right for anybody but us, but for us, it works really good because we can buy the hay. When we buy the hay, we're improving our land. We're bringing the biological capital in. And when we do the numbers, we're better to have a shorter grazing season in our situation, in a longer grazing season. In yours, you might get the exact opposite answer. You might say, how can I extend my grazing season because my winter feed is so high? You know. But again, I really want to stress that everybody's the expert on their farm. And one of the things I wanted to point out, that there have been some words come up like I made a mistake or you know, this was wrong or that. I decided about 25 or 30 years ago, no more mistakes. We just have learning opportunities. And we have lots of them but we never make a mistake because we do what we think is best today. 
it doesn't work out, we change it and we do something that's even better. So always build yourself and build your team. That's what's going to make you successful is how you feel about yourself, how confident you are, and you can control that. I can just add a little bit there too, Don, when you were talking about the screenings and some of the lesser quality feed. I know in the past, some of the things that have paid off best for us, spending a little bit of money on feed testing, because then you can get away with some of those lesser quality things. You spend a little bit on some of the supplements and not quite so much on some of that expensive pay. Uh, We have a question from Larry Holcomb. Larry, if you want to unmute yourself. Maybe Larry's not shy today or what? No, I got a new computer. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don, I apologize. I'm in the far south in Georgia, and I, sometimes I get by feeding hay only two months. But I figured out it's almost easier to make more money with less cows and less hay than it is with more cows and more hay. What are, What's your thoughts on that? I, I think you're 100% right for where you are. And, you know, there's uh, 67 people on this call. Everybody's going to get a different answer depending on their location, depending on their feed cost. You know, there's so many variables. And that's one of the real strengths of holistic management. It says, here's the principles. Care for your people, improve your land, make a profit. Now, who could argue with doing those three? But each of us is going to do those three differently. And you're going to do it differently and you'll be right. I'll do it differently. I'll be right. Steve will do it differently again, and we're all right. And holistic management says, this isn't how you do it. It says, here's the principles. And you've given us an excellent example of applying the principles in your area. I think I heard on Steve's show, maybe what, two, three years ago, that somebody said to stock for the winter and not for the summer. And that kind of makes sense, too. Yep. Certainly, you know. Yeah, thank you. But hey, I've cut back on my herd numbers, and I think I make more money because I was spending way too much on hay, even in my area. Yeah. A big part See, of it. Like, I like your comment there. Cut back on my cow numbers and made more money. I hope everybody heard that because that's really, really key. Running the maximum number of cows is not going to necessarily make you the most money. It's running well, the right amount of cows. I've always said I'd rather have a – 50 fat cows, and to say I had 100, and they'd be poor, snake poor, you know? Perfect. And the important part of that too, Larry, is being able to understand the, the gross margin analysis behind it, right? Once, once I learned how to do a, a gross margin analysis, the decisions were easy, right? Prior to that, where I'm just guessing, I'm doing what the neighbors are doing, I'm doing what I was told to do. Once you start figuring out your own numbers on your ranch in your situation, all of a sudden the answers become clear. Oh, I should do this or I shouldn't do this because the numbers are telling me so. Um, that's key to it. Just, I mean, in some situations, maybe more hay and more cows does make more money, right? Um, I, I remember going out to Ontario one time and uh, I did a talk on year round grazing and how we can graze in the winter time and we can save money and on and on and on. And, you know, my typical crowd was there. And then the next speaker got up. And he said, Steve, I really like what you had to say, but I'm going to have to admit that I can't afford to graze because I have too many darn cull carrots. What? I'm like, what? Cull carrots? And this fella had a bit of a feedlot. And I'm not, this is just the story I'm telling. He had a bit of a feedlot. And he was in the vegetable belt of Ontario. 
tons of vegetables, cull vegetables. He got all, they just dumped them on him all the time. So he layered this into his feedlot, vegetables, carrots and whatever, potatoes and everything else that he got. And he said, I had a piece of land down the road. I mean, the land is $300 an acre. I can't afford to, to, to go graze that. So I, I get all this free stuff and I feed my cattle with it, right? If you're just looking at a, on an economic basis, yeah, he can't afford to graze. I mean, to pay $300 an acre for that, it's just out of the, you know, the economics doesn't work. Now, there's a whole bunch of other stuff to unpack behind that, but just looking at the economics behind it, um, yeah, he was right. His economics were way different than mine. And there was somebody else in the same room that, you know, 50 miles from there, they were getting land rent for $25 an acre. So in their situation, it did work. So uh, economics is really important in every situation. Yeah, pumpkin season's coming up. There's going to be a lot of free pumpkins around our area. There's going to be leftover. Uh, Don Abraham's, Abrahamson has a question. Um, he's wondering if Don or Steve can comment on cow condition. There could be some feed cost changes in making the cow work a little bit harder. Yeah, I, I think cow condition is very important. Uh, one of the reasons we calve in May, like we used to calve, we never did calve early in our ranch. We used to calve on the 20th of March. That's when my dad had the ranch 50 years ago. We've moved that back to where now our, our due date is the 20th of May. And the reason we calve then is we try to look at the wildlife in our area. So deer, moose, elk, whatever you got, when do they calve? They calve in May and June. Why do they do that? Because more of the young ones survive and more of the females get rebred. Those two ideas of surviving and getting rebred are key to making money. So you want to work around those and make them work for you. I can add to that, Don, too. Um, years ago, I, I was a member, uh, I think it was Ranching for Profit, where they had the cow wheel and they were adjusting the cow wheel to, to make it when the cow needs the most nutrition that the the forage was the highest quality. But I was backwards. I was always been kind of backwards. I had already figured, like in my mind, I was already going through the cow wheel trying to figure that out. And I had lined up when the cow needs the least amount of nutrition with the time of year that was the coldest. And it ended up, at, you had the exact same answer. You're calving in, uh, you know, early June, somewhere in there. But I, I was lining it up actually opposite of what the, the, the I was being taught. But it was the, ended up having the exact same answer. So if you can basically time your calving with nature, is exactly what Don just said. Uh, that's what we were trying to do. But I was looking at that feeding period and, and, you know, how can I get away with feeding less? Well, then you put them in the second trimester right when the feed's the most expensive. So There has to be some more questions for Don out there. Um, one of the things that I'm wondering about a little bit, Don, you were talking at the very, very beginning about um, with the changes in in production and in grain and even biofuels may disappear a little bit. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how that's all related to, to feeding our cows too? Well, uh, like I don't know what's coming, Stacy, obviously, but food is important food is critical and if we get to the point where we're short of food we're not going to use our farmland to fatten cattle 
We're going to use that land to feed people. We're going to feed the cattle off the grass, which we can do easily. Same thing with ethanol or biodiesel, things like that. We're not going to use land, farm land to make gasoline. We're going to farm land to feed people. Like our priorities could just change totally. And I'm going to step out on a limb here and say, like, in, in my lifetime, 75 years, basically the goal in Western Canada or North America has been to have a better quality of life. And we've done tremendous at that. You know, we're, we're wealthy. Even if we think we're not, we're all very wealthy. And we all have a lot of things that never existed before. I think we need to focus more on having a quality of life. And how, how do I feel about myself? How's the relationships with the key people in my life? How's my relationship with God? And those things make you happy. Having a higher standard of living just means I got more stuff. So I got two half tons and neighbors only got one. Wow, good for me. Who cares? You know? So I think we've been going down the wrong road. And if we're challenged, I believe we can change and create a more loving, a more caring society. And I think that's possible. Thank you for that. Um, Megan, you had a question if you'd like to unmute yourself. Hi, Don. Yeah, I was just wondering. So if you Kevin may, do you, do you I know you keep yearlings, but do you when do you market your calves? Do you market any or do you keep them all for yearlings? No, no. Basically, Megan, we would keep all our calves over the winter, run them back on the grass. and We'd sell them towards the end of September, early October, year and a half old yearlings. And that, that's another thing, since we're talking about change, and I brought up a lot of changes. Uh, when I was a young person, the normal cattle coming off grass were two and a half years old. And I could see us going back to that again. We will keep those cattle another year on grass. And it would actually make us more sustainable and probably more profitable. So, you know, you, you, when you get your cows born at the right time of the year, which when nature tells you to do it, then you can market. you got more cows to market whenever you want to market and whenever you want to market. And just commenting on the yearling thing, like if you look at the people keep cows for all kinds of reasons. And there's a lot of cows kept in Western Canada that aren't very profitable. But the people that buy our feeder cattle, they don't buy them for fun. They buy them to make money. And when they buy them, if they pay too much this year, they don't bother. They just pay next last year. And over eight or 10 years, or 10 years, excuse me, they'll make money eight or nine years. So every time you sell your cow, somebody else will make money that you could have made. Simple idea, but might think about it. Um, Phil Lovenduck, you have a question? Yeah, it's actually perfectly timed with what we were just talking about. Uh, I've heard the minimum you need to uh, finish cattle on for uh, grass-fed beef is 24 months. Uh, I was just curious uh we were planning of actually based on our climate moving our uh calving uh regiment to uh october november uh over time uh because that would allow us to finish them on the grass uh feed them the fodder that we grow and <laughs> i'm just worried is with doing that is the coldness of uh, January, February, I'm from uh, uh, Northwestern Ontario by just outside Dryden, it's quite cold. Uh, is that a bad idea? And I just want like to hear your thoughts. Um, that a uh, hard one for me to answer. I don't know what to say, but 
I think you have the ability to figure that out. And like, if you get, you're going to get calf later, those calves are going to be young. How are they going to do a little bit of experience? I have not really experienced, but I'm talking to different people in Western Canada here is that those fall calving cows do pretty good in our climate, which would be just as harsh as yours or harsher. So it may work. When you're talking about finishing these cattle, the first thing I would come up with is, do I have a market? Because if you don't have a market, you better do something different. And, you know, depending on your numbers and your ability to market, that's a key thing, I think, before you make any changes at all. And, and again, I want to stress, Phil, like, I, got, I believe in people. You can sit down, you take your numbers, work them out, think about it, get some help from a neighbor or somebody. You'll come up with the right plan that'll work for you. And I learned years ago, probably 40 years ago, that I can make more money sitting at my desk and thinking, planning, than I ever could working. Because when you work, you make $28 an hour or 40, whatever the wages in your area. When you think, you make make $500, $5,000 an hour. And if you don't do the thinking on your business, who's going to do it for you? And the answer is nobody. Sure. Phil, do you have anybody else out there doing that? Do you have a mentor that's already doing that or somebody you've, you've talked to? Uh, no, I'm all on my own. I, uh, <laughs> to be honest, Steve, you're one. Uh, <laughs> like I honestly, <laughs> I've been uh, just using the internet and just reaching out with other people to uh, figure it out. We live in a very small community where even farming per se is not a, a big industry. Uh, so we've kind of gone down this uh, regenerative agriculture path and uh, the one thing also though that I've noticed is that it's uh, a lot easier to sell Cadillacs than Kias so we've been uh, we do all direct marketing with all of our products so we've been trying to create like better quality products essentially um, and the one thing I noticed with the grass fed is that the older they get, the better the finish for sure. Uh, they need at least two years uh, to finish out. And uh, at the same time, I just don't love the idea of a, you know, 12 week old calf growing up in February where we've had temperatures less than minus 58. Like it's, it's gets pretty brutal up here. So I'm just saying, like, is that just a disaster waiting to happen? Or if you have the infrastructure, it's okay. See, so one thing you might look at, Phil, there is that I think I understand why you're trying to do what you're proposing. But what if you calved in sync with nature and just kept those cattle a year longer at the end and put some numbers to that, put some costs? Because I mentioned a few minutes ago that at one time, all the cattle were two and a half or three years old. So, you know, yeah. you're, you're approaching it from the front end and I'm not saying that's wrong, but do that, do the numbers and then take it the other way and say, oh, I'm going to have in sync with nature. I'm going to keep those cattle a year longer. I'm going to sell them at two and a half years old and see what the numbers look like. Well, and that was our issue is that uh, with the extra hay costs, it was, uh, it was just more, I guess, is the way to describe it. And then the issue became is because we're keeping them longer uh, for so much longer, uh, we lose our uh, our pasture to increase our stocking density, if that makes any sense. Like we'd have to remove a lot of animals from the rotation in order to uh, accomplish the proper finish. 
So again, is I, I was just curious, like, I guess what I'm trying to ask for is, uh, what preemptive, uh, measures can I take? I guess I should have rephrased this question differently, but what preemptive measures can I take in the winter to protect like young calves? Uh, because I, unfortunately with the environment I live in, I, I have to do that. I don't have a good answer for that, but I, I think looking at the numbers might tell you, like you say, you got to reduce your cow numbers. That's fine. But on your overall ranch, if you calved in sync with nature, kept the cattle a year longer, what's that number look like? Or if you calved in the fall, sold them, you know, sooner, you got to compare those two for a full year to the best year ability and say, how does it weigh out? That, that's where I would start. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate the the advice. Uh, Phil, there's also a suggestion in the chat of someone who may make you a good mentor. If you want to re- scroll down a little ways. <laughs> okay. I'll check them out. <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, if we can go to you for your question around silage. Yeah, so I... I uh... I've done bell grazing for quite a few years, and uh, that has gone uh, very well. This year, with the uh, drought, I started uh, just there was really not much hay to cut, and I ended up getting it all put into silage. Um, and then I also had a bunch of oats in that they were gonna, I was going to combine, and I had all that put into silage instead as well. Um, so it's kind of my first year doing silage. I just kind of wanted to get some thoughts. Uh, if you guys have ever um, fed silage and um what your thoughts are on that if that's something that i should maybe i guess every everybody's situation is different but uh, just some thoughts on that is all i'm kind of curious about thanks for the question Uh, i don't have any experience with silage at all and i guess all i might say in response to your question is that try to get the urine and the manure on the land that's where the value is. So whether you're feeding silage or bale grazing or whatever else you're doing, we don't want the cattle locked up in a pen. We want them on the land, improving the land. Cow is supposed to do two things. Harvest the wealth, means she's got to graze the grass and improve the land, which means she has to manure and urinate. So those are valuable, valuable commodities. Got to get them on the land. Thank you. And I've actually only fed silage three times, uh, three years. Uh, twice, I've actually fed silage out of a, a silage uh, pit. Um, years ago, I think it was about 208, 209, something like in there. Uh, I had a neighbor, well, a few years previous to that, probably the drought of 202. Uh, they were having a couple of bad years. I think they had two different piles. They were, they were one was three or four years old and one was uh, a year older than that. And, uh, he, hay was expensive. So he had these piles sitting there because he had a barley crop wreck or something years ago and didn't know what to do with it. So we put it in a pit and he didn't have any cattle. So they just sat there. So I offered him, I think back then, 75 cents per head per day if I could graze the silage piles. He's like, okay, I guess I got nothing else to do. So I just used a strip wire and I just kept walking it towards the pile. They had this, you know, six, seven foot uh, pile of silage in front of them and I just used an electric fence in front of it and we grazed through the pile. Now 
downside to that, it was, ended up with a lot of manure and urine all in there, right? And I still had it open to them and I put some straw bales and, and supplemented with a little bit of hay out in the field to try and get them out there. Uh, and it worked to a point, but it was one of those years it was, uh, you know, desperate because the price of hay was through the roof. So I've actually done that two years. I grazed piles. And then another year, I actually bought some some silage from a, a neighbor. He had a bunch to sell. And I, I hired him. It, it worked out being cheaper because I didn't even have to do any of the work. He brought it over and he would put out four days worth of silage in my fields in piles like it was bale grazing. He'd bring his mixer over and dump a pile here and dump a pile there and dump a pile there. And the cost that he was doing it for, it was actually very economical for me. Um, so we fed silage. Um, somebody told me that you can't do that. You're not supposed to put, you know, you got to feed it silage every day. You can't put it out for four days. Uh, they did fine. You know, I, I don't know why you can't do that. I think you have to refresh the face of the, the silage or something in the spoil, but oh, they did great. So that's my only experience feeding silage. Uh, again, crunch the numbers. Is it is it the most economical way to do it? Uh, I know lots of people have argued that silage is the most efficient way to harvest feed. Right, You can get a lot of feed up and a, and a lot of good value to it. The problem is it's usually the most expensive way to feed that feed, right? So you've got to be able to look at both sides of it, the harvesting side of it and the feeding of it. Um, that's where bale grazing comes in. It lowers your labor and equipment costs. So um, can you feed silage like bale grazing? Right? I, I've seen guys who make uh, small tubes. You know, you can put silage in a tube. Well, he puts small tubes all out across his fields. And then he would just cut open one tube at a time. So they would all eat on this tube. So kind of a modified bale grazing, but you've got these, you know, small tubes of, of uh, silage out there that they were opening up. So again, that spreads it around similar to bale grazing, but a little bit more concentrated in areas, but still better than, you know, being in a feed yard. That's for sure. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, uh, uh, I'm not looking forward to feeding as often. That's for sure. So that's kind of, <laughs> but I like that idea for sure. Thank you. Well, and just along with what you've commented, Steve, Eric has commented in the comments here that they bale graze silage bales. They just can't put out as many at a time or they freeze or spoil depending on temperatures. So sounds like uh, something to continue to look into. Um, Etienne has asked a question. When it comes to holistic management for making the big decisions, how do you decide if the situation should prioritize should prioritize your lifestyle, economics, or the land? Thoughts, that's, Don? That's a wonderful question. <laughs> Which and way's I mean, the stool leaning, right, Don? Yeah, yeah. Which way's the stool leaning? That's right. You got to look at, you know, I mean, like in holistic management, talk about people, land, and money. And they're all vitally important. We can't sacrifice one for the other. And what I've found in my own life and in most of the people I've worked with across Western Canada, People tend to be the weak issue, and men tend to be the weak issue in the in the people side. And we don't want to sit down and talk about our feelings and how we feel or how we love each other, you know, that kind of thing. So we're great at going out and working, but we don't want to do the hard work of building our marriages, building our families, building our communities. So you need to say, well, all these three legs are vital. They're all important. Where am I weak? And that's what Steve just referred to. So if you're weak on the people side, 
let's put some money, let's put some time, let's put some effort into that. Because that's where we're weak. That's why we're likely to fail in our business is because of the people. What's the use doing a better job of growing if we're going to fall apart because our people can't work together? No sense at all. And once you figure that out, then you need to address whatever the weak link is. And say for this year, we're going to focus on uh, improving our communication. Great. Let's go for it. You know, and I'm going to suggest one of the things in holistic management, or even in life for that matter, is when you have your direction going the right way. And if you could sit down at a kitchen table and say, you know, our finances are getting better, land's improving, we're making a profit, or people are improving, we're getting along better. Once you go in the right direction, you don't have to rush. There's no need to say, well, let's get it done in three years or five years. What if it took 50 years? Who cares? Nobody. And I used to have all kinds of goals that I wanted to do this in four or five years. Now I'm saying, well, if the great-grandchildren get it done, that's great. Because I know it's getting better every year. I'm enjoying my life. Why put pressure on myself? So I think if you analyze your business, you'll come up with where your weak link is and your which leg of the stool is the weakest. That's the one you need to strengthen. I'd like to add to that too, Don. Um, two, two examples. Sometimes the, the people side of it, um, what you're trying to avoid sometimes is the best thing for it to happen. I had a fellow one time, they were two brothers working together, right? They, they took over the farm together, their dad's farm, right? This is just the, the ideal situation. This is what we're supposed to do. But the problem was they didn't get along, right? When they actually sat down and worked it out, they decided to split the farm in half and work separately. And in the end, it was the best decision they ever made because then they they got along, right? Then, then it was separate and it worked out. Um, I used to feel guilty because I left my my parents' farm years ago. And I talked to this fellow about, about them splitting up. It was the right decision to do. Well, I left my, my parents' farm because my dad and I didn't get along, right? We started farming together and we were, you know, we were just different personalities and it just wasn't working. The best thing I ever did was leave that farm. Because the people side of it, my dad and I have the best relationship we've ever had now because we don't farm together. Um, when I go down there, we're, he's happy to see me. I'm happy to see him. Years ago, we, we were just always at each other's throats, right? So the fact that what's best for the people, eh, sometimes it is maybe to, to, to go different ways. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that my dad and I have a great relationship now. And, and that's because I, I moved away. So... That's a good story, Steve. Thanks for sharing that. It's important, you know, that the right answer isn't always what you think it is. That's an excellent example. Thank you. Very true. Uh, TJ Elliott, you had a question, if you'd like to unmute. Yeah, I'm just curious um, if you guys managed anything differently, you know, on the stuff after you bail graze that next spring and summertime. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of experience, but when we did, it was on, uh, you know, kind of poor ground, a lot of bare ground, the traps and stuff. So uh, there's a lot of weeds and stuff. And and I wasn't sure just to let them be more or just get in and utilize them. Well, that, that's a good question, TJ. And what I would suggest is that if you grow some weeds and an HM, we'd call them forbs. Most of those are cattle will graze. The ones they don't graze, they'll knock down and they'll cover their topsoil. And the amount of weeds you grow or forbs 
will depend on how much residual you leave. So if you have really good hay and you mostly clean it up, you won't have hardly any weeds. If you have very poor quality feed and you leave quite a bit of residual, cattle won't eat it. You're going to have more weeds. But if you look at the circle again where the bale impacted, you'll have more grass in the total circle. And over time where the weeds are, that will turn to grass and it'll be some of your very best grass. So it takes some time, but you're not going the wrong way at all. And I used to have a friend of mine, he wanted to uh, harrow his bale grazing. And I said, well, sure, if you've got too much time and too much money, go ahead. And what he found, he got a heavy harrow and he went across it and where the manure was spread and everything was spread quite evenly. He did, harrow did a wonderful job. When he got to where it was sick, the harrow went over the top. So all he's doing is spending his time and money and that's not wrong if you want to do it. Go ahead. It's not necessary. Yeah. Um, do we manage it differently in the summertime? Uh, I think I said earlier that when I bale graze, it's a very small percentage of my land, right? If I'm doing 3,000 acres, but I'm only bale grazed 35 acres, then, you know, do I manage it differently? No, not really. If it comes around in my rotation, when it comes in my rotation, I still do short graze periods and long rest periods. Um, you know, just because it's got a bale grazing out there doesn't mean I I, you know, I'm not going to split it up and maybe, you know, graze it harder or lighter. Um, to me, it's going to improve no matter what. There's weeds out there, big deal. We're going to knock them down with the same intensity that we've done the other fields with. Uh, they might end up staying out there an extra day because there's that much more growth out there. But no, I don't really manage for the bale grazing the next summer. I just graze it in my, in my rotation. Um, Matt, you have a question about rest periods, if you'd like to unmute yourself. Yeah, thanks for taking the question. Um, calendar is one way to measure the rest period and stuff like that. Calendar is not always perfect because the calendar doesn't account for rainfall and sunlight and all those other things. So I'm looking for other physical indicators that says it's ready for the cows the second time or the third time or whatever the, the next time. Give me a little bit of, of grass learning here. How do you know when it's ready? That, that's a great question, Matt. Um, I, I certainly agree. Like the climate, the rain, all those things are different from year to year. When the grass is fully recovered, the best answer I've ever heard is that the plant is ready to flower. And that's more mature than most of us are used to. Most of us want to keep it in the vegetative stage. I think if you go past that just a little bit, you'll do better. When the plant is ready to flower, photosynthesis starts to slow down. So there's not you're not capturing much solar energy. So if you go past full recovery, you're really not gaining anything. Now, we've, we grazed, like when I went and I took my first course, the guys teaching were from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they said, you know, you need a, I think they were saying 40 to 60 day recovery at that time. And I said, boy, I'm in northern Saskatchewan. My days are exceptionally long. My moisture is really good. I can grow my grass in 21 days. And I put my cows all in my herd and I went around half the ranch in 21 days and there was no grass where I started. Fortunately, I had the other half of the ranch. And then we've experimented on our own place from the 21 days up to 85 days. And what we find is 85 days, if it isn't going to grow in 85, it probably isn't going to grow in our country. 85 days gives us a maximum production of grass, high nutrition, best uh, stocking rate. So that's kind of what we shoot for and it'll vary from year to year. Like sometimes the first 20 days won't go hardly at all, but it'll catch up in the next 60 days. So that's kind of what we would do. 
And I'm a, I'm a bit of a believer in change. I think change is a tool that we can use. Um, sometimes I'm going to have a longer rest period. Sometimes I'm going to have a bit of a shorter one. Right. Am I managing for the land? Am I managing for the people? Am I managing for the animals? Right. I like to vary it a little bit. Um, sometimes I'll have a longer rest period. Sometimes I'll have a, 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 a nice shorter one. Um, I'll put out different classes of livestock. Right. One year on this pasture, I'll run cow calf pairs and have a long rest period. Uh, another year, I might bring some yearlings in and have a shorter rest period. Um, I think change is a tool that stimulates the, the, the plants. So uh, I vary mine. I'll, I'll, I'll change it up after, uh, you know, we just had a couple of years of drought. Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to change that a little bit, give it a longer rest period, let everything heal a little bit. Um, okay. We've just had a couple of really good years. Grass is just doing great. Okay. I can speed that up a little bit and, and uh, you know, get a little more off of it and get some more carbon sequestration going, right. Getting those plants pushing, pushing more exudate down into the soil. So um, I vary it. Um, there's no one right answer. I think change is, is a tool that we have in our tool belt. Seeing there's no other questions, I'm going to follow up. Um, I had a big change this year. I went from once over to twice over. Okay, so big change. Um, I'm really liking what I see in with the, the twice over. Um, I also kept my calves. I didn't sell them during the winter. I kept them, and I used them out ahead of the cows um, I got a lot of brome grass in my pasture and I wanted to, to get them to beat back the grown grass and the bluegrass. Um, but even by the time the calves got around the first rotation, um, a lot of that brome grass had headed out and gone to seed already and stuff like that. Well, that's only going to happen once a season. So that's not going to be an indicator for me later in the season when I came back with the pears. Um, I just, you know, got to look at at, at height and, and leaf length and, and that type of stuff, I guess, because, you know, I, I, you mentioned when it's ready to flower again, well, that's not going to happen with a lot of my grasses. So what, what was your question in the second part? Sorry. <laughs> Good point. Was there a... <laughs> I don't know what it was. Yeah. Just okay. making a comment that most yeah. of my grass isn't going to, isn't going to try to flower a second time in my season. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. The, the, I, I think that's true, Matt, and I don't think that matters. Like a few years ago here, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe we had uh, didn't have a good gain on our yearlings, and I was kind of disappointed. So I went out and I clipped some grass, you know, kind of the way we 85-day recovery grass, and I clipped it and I sent it into the university and got a feed test on it, and it came back, and the guy said, well, that's really good for second-cut alfalfa. And it wasn't second-cut alfalfa at all. What it was was mixed grasses, lots of legumes, lots of different grasses, lots of forbs, but the management was good. And we had tremendously high nutrition. So when, when you change your management, everything changes. And we had a field day here a few years ago. We were looking at a bale grazing site. We had a couple of forage specialists here from the government of Saskatchewan. And one of the guys, he was standing off by himself and he's picked a broom grass plant. And he's looking at it and there's 10 leaves on it. And he came back over to where the group was standing and he said, you know, the university taught me broom grass grows four leaves and that's it. He says, this has 10. Why? And it's because of the management. So when you change your management, everything changes and everything is connected. That's what holistic management says. Everything is connected. Everything has a value. Everything is important. So, you know, you're the expert on your place. Go for it. You, you're going to 
That'd be just fine. Well, I think uh, questions have slowed down a little bit. The conversation has been really fantastic tonight. I, I hope it continues after this. But as is the tradition with Wednesday night networking to wrap up kind of the, the formal part of the evening, I'd like to ask Stephen and Don if they have any final thoughts and encouragement for the producers that are on the line tonight. And uh, then we will shut down the recording and uh, hopefully keep the conversation going. Go ahead, Don. What's your final thoughts on tonight? Okay, great. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank everybody that tuned in. Thanks, Steve, for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity to share my views. Um, I can tell you honestly, like I've been living my dream almost all my life. I came back to the ranch in 1972 when I started ranching. And I've been living my dream. I was a conventional rancher from 72 to 85. And from 85 till today, I've been a holistic manager. Um, I can't imagine how my life would get any better. And I know the only way it gets better for me to get better as a person. I'm working on that, but it's slow, hard work. But like my life is, you know, I'm ranching with my children. I've got enough money. I've got enough, I've got enough of everything. Life is absolutely wonderful. And part of that is you need to believe in yourself, and believe in your spouse, and believe in your family, and believe in your team. You can achieve remarkable, remarkable things. You're all smart. You're all intelligent. You can make better decisions. You can create the future you want. And I'm living proof of that, and I'm a very average citizen. If I can do it, every one of you can do it. And thank you for having me on. Excellent. Thank you, Don. So I'm going to back up to some of Don's very first comments here. Some of the most powerful things I ever learned was from Alan Savory and from holistic management. Um, the water cycle is a very important part of agriculture. And as Don said at the beginning, there's so many civilizations that have collapsed because of the, uh, you know, the, the destruction of the soil or the, the crash of agriculture. Um, I just keep thinking this keeps going over and over in my head. It has been for a couple of years now. The dirty 30s are not that far away. Right. We had the third, the, the, the droughts of the 30s and, and how devastating agriculture was back then. It's coming again. Right, it's not that far away. We're going to have that happen again, where these massive droughts and these massive floods and and uh, massive rain rainstorms. We need to fix the water cycle. That is a huge priority for me. Um, I'm yelling it far and far and uh, wide. I'm standing on my soapbox uh, all over the place, trying to talk about the water cycle and how important it is. So, I hope that message gets out. And uh, I would like to thank Don for being here. He's uh, one of my all all time favorite mentors. Um, uh, Don and uh, Dennis Wabaser were part of the Devon Club when I was just uh, wet behind the ears. Really appreciate them uh, allowing me to be a part of their group, even though I, uh, I, I, w I wasn't supposed to be, but they let me in. So a big thanks to Don for that. And, and very much so I appreciate you being here, Don, and, and sharing your wisdom. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Steve. Thank you. Echo that. Echo that. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight and for for uh, hanging in there while we dealt with our couple of issues at the beginning of the evening. We will stop the recording now and uh, feel free to unmute yourself and carry on the conversation.